Hello, I'm Bill Carr. We're here in unceded Mi'kmaq territory, also known as Nova Scotia, in a place called Shibuktuk, also known as Halifax. In a couple of days, it's the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, March 21st. And we're here today to discuss an issue that's uh, very relevant to all of us, and uh, tragically so. called the podcast today a simple matter of justice four little words which in this case we'll see form as ironic a title as ever could be we're here today to talk about what's happening to abdul qadir abdi just to get started here i want to briefly summarize abdul abdi is a former child refugee from somalia who came to canada with what was left of his family at the age of six through a set of circumstances which followed he found himself in the foster care system and was moved through 31 different care situations until he reached the age of 18, when he was, as they say, aged out of the system. He got into some trouble with the law, served his sentence, but is now facing possible deportation to Somalia, a country he's not been to, whose culture and language are now foreign to him, a country under an extreme travel advisory alert because it is what is called a failed state, where acts of violence and terrorism are, it may be said, a common occurrence. Some issues, like this one, have a profound impact on the people directly involved, as this issue does on Abdul Abdi and his family. And some issues, like this one, have a profound impact on all of us. As a community, a province, a country, a nation, it impacts who we are as a culture and as people. It asks us loudly and clearly, are we an open, inclusive, caring society, a beacon of hope and opportunity, as so many of us would like to believe, and many of our politicians tell us and everyone else that we are, or is that a deluded myth that we want to hold and the reality something quite different? A simple matter of justice. We don't know what justice would look like until we understand the nature of the injustice done. What happened here? What's happening here? The real answers to these questions are what got the Toronto chapter of Black Lives Matter involved in this case, as well as a lawyer supported by the International Human Rights Program from the University of Toronto, among others, including my guest today, L. Jones, who's the Nancy chair Nancy's Chair in Women's Studies at Mount St. Vincent University uh, in Nova Scotia here, and an activist and a poet, among many other wonderful things. Elle Jones, welcome. Thank you. And please help us shift our brains. Um, can you, can you I, I gave a brief summary, can you tell me where, where the situation stands now and what got you involved? So on the 7th, there was a hearing, an admissibility hearing on the 7th of March that was postponed. So that hearing is where you're stripped of your permanent residency. It's usually 100%. Uh, once you go to this hearing, you lose your permanent residency, which includes your right to work, uh, your right to health care, basically all of your rights that anybody with status in this country would have. Mm-hmm. Um, that hearing was postponed to the 21st. Um, so there'll be a decision made whether to proceed with that or whether to allow the case to be heard in federal court first. Right. So we're waiting. This is Monday. So on Wednesday, we'll know the decision then, and they'll either proceed with the admissibility hearing or they will, as Ben Perryman calls it, hit pause hit the pause button, and wait for the issues in federal court to be heard, which is the hope. And Ben is the lawyer. Ben Perryman is the lawyer. Yeah. And and how, how does it feel? Like, is it sounding like that's what's going to... Um, I don't know. I mean, every time it's been in court, Abdul has been successful. So he won a, in about November, he won in federal court. Mm-hmm. So I think... Everybody's very hopeful that the federal court case, which addresses issues such as the Charter of Human Rights, so the Charter issues, so for example, um, until last year, minors were not able to apply for their own citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, even had he been able to apply and that law had applied to Abdul, which it didn't, um, criminal acts under the Youth Justice Act mm-hmm. are treated as adult acts under the criminal code under immigration. So even though in the youth system, obviously, we understand that youth acts have a completely different consequence, that youth have completely different understanding, and that obviously we treat youth acts with forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, under immigration code, those are treated the same as adult acts, meaning that if you have a conviction under the youth criminal code, um, essentially you have a time period of where you're banned from applying for citizenship. So even if Abdul had being able to apply on his own behalf, which he wasn't, he wouldn't have been able to anyway because he was, um, and I'm not sure what the term to use is, but there was a waiting period. Like once you get convicted under the youth code, you have to wait right. a certain amount of years before they allow you to. So he's essentially never been able to apply for his own citizenship. And and I, I, I look at this uh, situation and I've read a lot of the, you know, the stories around it that have been written up. And the one thing that keeps striking me is this this idea that he was 
in foster care here in Nova Scotia. Now, I wanted to ask that. Did you have you have you uh, you've been talking to politicians here in Nova Scotia and federally? Are they responding positively or? Um, no. No. <laughs> so we held on the sixth. There was a national day of action for Abdul. Uh, so that was in Halifax, Ottawa, Toronto, and Regina. Mm-hmm. And so in our piece, we held a press conference at Province House, which was hosted by the NDP. Um, and we directly addressed the role of DCS, the Department of Community Services, in this and re- like requested that the province take some responsibility. Um, Trudeau, for example, identified the failure of the province. Uh, Ahmed Hussein, the Minister of Immigration, when he was at the town hall here in February, it must have been, mm-hmm. um, identified anti-black racism as a factor in this case. Um, but the provincial government has not done anything. And in fact, their line has been, you can't force children to get their citizenship. So they have essentially suggested that having a policy that would require uh, all children in care who are non-citizens to receive citizenship automatically would be, quote, forcing children to get their citizenship. Um, So a completely ridiculous response. And other than that, um, they've said they're reviewing these cases, but that's not an external review. That has seemed to be an internal review, so um, not a formal review, and certainly not an inquiry into these cases. And uh, when Ben Perryman did a Freedom of Information request, the province has no policy and they didn't anticipate closing that gap until 2019. So there's really been no response on a provincial level to take any kind of responsibility to intervene. It is difficult because it is a federal case, so the province doesn't have status to intervene, but they could intervene in the sense of um, speaking to their colleagues in terms of, um, so they don't have the ability to stop what's happening, but certainly they could place a lot of pressure. Certainly they could advocate for Abdul and speak up, and that has not been happening. Well, this is, this is where the, the issue of law and justice seem to be parting company because the law says they can't intervene, etc. But But we have a case of a, of a young man who was a child and, and who uh, was in 31 different care facilities where the care wasn't really caring from the, from the sounds of the information. Yeah, Abdul uh, dislikes us using the word care to speak about this. Yes, um, I thought that. So he has said it wasn't homes, it was group homes, it was locked environments, like punitive mm-hmm. environments that he experienced them as. So, um, I mean, this is the problem is the immigration case. So, for example, the admissibility hearing, there is no room to discuss those issues. So it's really a box ticking exercise. So did you commit a criminal act? Are you a citizen? If those two things are true, you're stripped of your citizenship, the end, yes. or, or of your residency rather. Um, it's in the federal court where these case these issues are brought up. So the rights of minors under the charter, um, Canada's obligation under international law to non-citizen children in care. Mm-hmm. So these issues that are clearly the foundational issues in this case actually don't exist under the immigration court system. There's no place to address them. There's no place for interveners to discuss. So like, there's no place for like a youth ombudsman to speak. Um, it's simply not relevant to the immigration case. Um, and then they have argued that uh, proceeding is the right thing to do because no harm is being done to Abdul because that harm is not irreversible. Wow. So... It begs the question, how, you know, we're, we've got a, a country that's opening the doors to immigration and is and is announcing to the world and... and well, is announcing that we it, open the door. In reality, right. we're about 200th in the world in terms of accepting uh, refugees. Yeah. We, you know, we took 25,000 uh, people in families. Turkey takes, you know, millions. Germany has taken in millions. Mm-hmm. Lebanon takes millions. Um, so we actually have, it's a myth that we take it in refugees myth. and that we have, we have one of the toughest immigration policies in the world in terms of admittance. Um, well, this is thing, showing that. I mean, this is, this is yeah. proof of that. And the other thing that is that there, that, that ultimately there, there aren't the services here to accept the way that they need to be Treated. I mean, this is this is a, this one is glaring to me that they. That yeah, and I mean, what's interesting is Abdul was a government-sponsored refugee, so he wasn't a claimant. Um, so they were actually brought under the government program. But one of the things we saw, in particular, in reference to Somalia, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's coincidental that this is happening to a Somali youth. Um, because one of the issues we've seen with Somalis is when we got an influx of Somali refugees in the 90s, they were in fact not accorded the same services as other refugees. And this is not to. Um, create a division between refugees, but Syrians receive more services than uh, Somalis did. And that is directly tied to the anti-black racism in the immigration system. So when it's Haitians, when it's Somalis, you see a different level of care, a different level of community acceptance. And then that has created a trajectory where we get Somali immigrants or refugees in the early 90s in particular, Mm -hmm. um, and through the 90s in response to 
let's not forget Canada is very active in Somalia as troops, right? It's very actively military contributing to the so-called failed state of Somalia. And if you, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, the Canadian troops were raping and torturing young boys in uh, the Canadian military camps. Uh, there was a huge scandal about it in the early 90s. A lot of people don't remember this at all. Um, but they had to disband regiments. Uh, they were also torturing each other. So at the same time, there was all this abuse going on like between the troops, but they were kidnapping young boys and, you know, boys would be at the perimeter of the camp and they were taking them and they were raping them. It was, it was a horrible scandal. And this is what we were up to in Somalia. So let's not say that our hands are clean. Right. And then the refugees that come as a result of that conflict that we're heavily implicated in um, are basically not given any services by Canada and end up, of course, living in low-income areas, mostly in Toronto, and then get this reputation as a result of that deprivation of being gang members, being violent, which then reverberates to someone like Abdul, where the fact that you're Somali has a particular idea around being a public danger, right? So um, we deny the services. Then we say Somalis are violent, and they're in gangs, and they're all drug dealers, which isn't true, but obviously uh, that's the image. And then somebody like Abdul gets essentially tarred with that brush, if I can use that phrase. Mm. Um and that contributes to why uh, him as a Somali youth in particular would be eligible for deportation in particular ways. So, um, yeah, the it's, again, a myth that we provided these kind of services or acceptance. And in particular, when it is African immigrants, when it's Haitian immigrants, we see a, a completely different level. Uh, right now, there's Haitians on the border in Quebec. Um, Black Lives Matter went down there. So... Um, with a Haitian lawyer as well. No, it was, um, she's Ethiopian, but they went down to the border. And like, it was basically a tent city and people are living essentially in like a refugee camp on the border of Canada. They're not being admitted. They're not being, there's kids in like, you know, behind detention glass down there. Um, there's all kinds of people that die in detention uh, cells in Canada. We have indefinite immigration detention here. They don't mm -hmm. even have that in the States. That's something they're trying to bring in in the States. We have it in Canada so that you can be detained indefinitely with no trial. With um, this. So somebody just passed the eight and a half year mark, I believe, in Canada. That's right. Of being detained. That. Yes. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is, is one of the heavy myths of Canada that we are some kind of welcoming, inclusive, arms open to refugees you know, that we just let ISIS in, you know, all of these things. Yeah. Um, in fact, we're, we're very, very unwelcoming. So th this was, this occurred in Nova Scotia first. I yeah. mean, it, it's, it's not just a federal issue. This is a Nova Scotia specific province issue. And then it's a federal issue. And then he ended up in Toronto, I, I take it. Yeah, so he's in a halfway house in Toronto. And, and the care, the, the situations, the, the, um, the halfway houses, etc., that he found himself in here in Nova Scotia, there wasn't support. I, one of the things that I read was that there was an issue around language and bullying in the school, and none of that was addressed. Yeah, so to this day, the kids don't actually know why they were removed. Mm -hmm. um, they say it's because they didn't attend school because they were experiencing racialized bullying in the school. So their aunt, who identifies as their mother, uh, pulled them out of school. So this is when they apparently come into contact with care. There was no translators provided, so they're not sure as a family actually why that happened or what happened. And that's never been clarified? That's never been clarified for them. It may be in their files, but mm. um, they are very clear on that. Um, the kids were, when they were taken from uh, the home that were put into group homes where they were forbidden from speaking Somali to each other. Um, so they were accused of, you know, if they'd speak Somali to each other, oh, you're plotting to escape. And they were put on timeout, which is essentially solitary confinement, like confined to your room if they spoke Somali. So they very quickly lost that language, which mm. is why they don't speak it now. Um, they did not practice Islam, even though they are Muslim. Um, they have no access to their culture. So all these things were forcibly stripped from them. And now, of course, you want to send Abdul back there. Um, a point was made in an article that came out recently in the conversation that, um, you know, this argument of nature over nurture, right? So even though all this happened in Canada, the idea is that he's bad because he's Somali. So like, let's just kick him out to Somalia. So it's a very racist argument being made that even though he's been here since he was six, even though all the trauma that happened to him happened in Canada, even though the failures which have been acknowledged by the government happened in Canada, it's somehow still Somalia's problem because he's Somali. In fact, he's never been to Somalia. He wasn't born in Somalia. He was born in a refugee camp in Saudi Arabia. And and, it, and I, I was looking at the, uh, the two in one of the articles they were talking about, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 15, and the Article 7 of the UN, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which which are relevant. But there's one that, that Those I... Those are very relevant. That's part of the federal court case. And, and so, But so. so should Article 20 be. I, I read, I'll just read this. Um, children in deprived of family environment, children who cannot be looked after by the, their own family, which it was quote unquote determined that they couldn't be, have a right to special care and must be looked after properly by people who respect their ethnic group, 
religion, culture, and language. Yeah, so Not even remotely happening here. And these are the issues that are being examined in the federal court case, which is why it's been repeatedly called for by his lawyer and by advocates that they halt the immigration proceedings until these issues can be heard in federal court. Um, because this is exactly the fact that uh, the rights of minors are violated because they couldn't apply for citizenship. We have a special duty towards non-citizen children in care. Under international law, there's particular duties that have not been um, met. So we violate international law here and continue to do so because Abdul isn't the only case. Yes. Um, there's at least a dozen, I think at least 20 cases have now come up. Um, it happens all the time. But what is happening is um, like a kind of cruelty of bureaucracy where people acknowledge that the forms weren't done. Um, yeah, you know, this didn't happen. Oh, well, let's keep going. Um, so this particular belief in the process, which goes to your point about law and justice, right? That the argument essentially by the federal government is this is the process. So we just follow the process and we're not going to halt the process. So what would be unjust is a judge intervening to halt the process. What would be unjust is pausing this because this is the process. And it's only fair that we go through the process, even though we're dealing with a unique case where this is dealing with rights of the child. But um, that doesn't really come into play. It's just this idea that you just full steam ahead, strip him of his rights. Um, that apparently isn't a harm because... And I've described this as, you know, telling somebody that don't bother getting out of the way of that truck bearing down upon you because, you know, you can get surgery to pin your limbs back together later, right? Uh, you can sue the truck driver later, you know, so uh, this is kind of the attitude towards Abdul that, um, you know, if you lose all your rights, oh, well, you know, you can look for another job, you can get a work permit, you can, uh, you know, run up a half a million dollar debt and like fix it later, you know. But they and they're not the thing that I'm I'm kind of shocked about. I mean, I'm not shocked actually. I'm I'm watching and, and and in dismay, is the is that polarity like the the clarity with which you're speaking now and and we seeing different articles in indicating the the racial nature of it, the racist nature of what's happening, the uh, the unjust treatment of children. Like it, it, it's unreasonable. It's unhu inhumane what's gone down, and yet they are standing behind this mask of, of, of law and order. Yeah, and I mean, this is repeatedly so um, when Fatuma, his sister, challenged Justin Trudeau at the town hall mm -hmm. over this deportation. So this was early in January. What was it, January 6th or something like that? Uh, when Trudeau came for a town hall, might have been the 7th, um, to Halifax, uh, Fatuma went and confronted him at that town hall. And he, he said the same thing on the radio earlier in the day, so that we're compassionate, but we're rules-based and fair. Um, so that Canadians have trust in the system if they understand its rules-based, if they understand people are heavily vetted, then we know we're getting these like good immigrants and refugees, it won't cause us harm. This is kind of the um, party line. Mm -hmm. Of course, Ben Perryman has pointed out that a rule is only fair if you would apply it to yourself and your own family. So is this a rule you would like apply to your own children? If it's not, then it's not a good rule and we need to move on from that rule. <laughs> um, but this is repeatedly what they've said, that it's a fair system. That And the idea of fairness is that therefore you have to proceed with this um, process that they apply across the board that has no room for any nuance, no room for considering rights, no room for anything. It's literally just a box checking exercise. Mm. Um, and that's not done in really any other courts. I mean, within even our obviously very unjust criminal justice system, obviously there's things like pre-sentencing reports, there's opportunities for cultural reports, GLADU reports for Indigenous people. Um, you know, you can have experts on the stand that testify about trauma. You know, all those things are available in a courtroom in ways that they're not available in the immigration system, mm -hmm. where they simply do not consider any extenuating circumstances at all. So as, as we move, quote, unquote, move forward with this open door policy that Trudeau keeps announcing, and I'm not, I'm not picking on him in particular, but he is the one who's at the face of it right now. They, the, the, the support systems aren't there. I'm not a child psychologist, but looking at 31 different situations between before he was 18 from the and I, I just can't see how that could be anything else but traumatic and the and there must be there must have been huge implications for his health emotionally emotional health yeah so he wasn't offered any um therapy no or any therapy that was culturally competent certainly um obviously a number of red flags would have showed early around uh, behavior and stuff like that um, which wasn't addressed um of course the kids in the care system uh, those issues are mostly addressed criminally, which is why you end up with youth contact. So, mm -hmm. uh, and kids in care will tell you this: that you know, if you're a teenager and you like yell at your parents and roll your eyes, your parents will just be like, "Oh, you know, like 
whatever. I don't know what parents do. I mean, I'm, I'm an immigrant child, so I didn't yell at my mom. Like, you know, but I hear that some people yell at their moms and I, I don't know, that's normal teenage behavior, right? Um, in a situation where you're in a group home, that is treated as a breach of discipline and disobedience. They're put into timeouts, which is essentially solitary confinement. Um, they've talked about essentially having to do dog training to get out. So they'll be like, go stand in the corner, stand on one leg, put your arms on your head to show that you're being obedient and that you've, you know, calmed down enough to take instructions. Um, so they talk about basically walling themselves off because what they expect from you is complete submission. Uh, things like rolling your eyes and like being like, get out of my face, you know, um, that's treated like you can get police contact from that. They'll call the police for that. Um, you end up sat on or like restrained by like men. Uh, so girls are restrained by like seven men because they're upset because you've taken their headphones from them and told them they can't listen to music. You know, it's these kind of things. Um, so you're criminalized within that system. So if you miss curfew, they call the police. Uh, if you're out with friends, they call the police. If you get angry and, you know, turn around and punch the wall, they call the police. So these are, the police is essentially your parent when you live in this situation. The police ends up taking the role of discipline that your parent should be taking. Mm -hmm. And so when people say, oh, well, you know, is this youth record? Um, these youth records initially come from basically your trauma being criminalized or your normal behavior as a, a child or as a teenager being criminalized. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, those kids easily move over into the youth justice system because they've already had all this police contact. So one of the police contacts that Abdul has uh, at a young age is his sister. They're in a home together. His sister is removed because it's abusive and her teacher sees bruises on her. And, you know, um, she's removed and he's kept there. And he, at one point, apparently steals the family car and goes to look for his sister when he's 11 years old to find his sister. Mm -hmm. That's a police contact. So these are the kind of things that he was criminalized over. And then, yes, then you end up in the youth justice system. Um, and then you end up in the adult justice system. So uh, there's these clear trajectories. Um, when they do studies, about 50% of kids in care end up in the criminal justice system. Um, it's, you know, there's a phrase for it because it's so common, crossover. So the phenomenon of crossover between the care system and the prison system. So, I mean, this it's is... That there's a term so to this, develop because there's it's There's a term common. because it's so common. So, yeah. I mean, this would have been very obvious to anybody involved in the care system what the likely outcome was. And in particular, what the likely outcome of him not having citizenship was. Mm -hmm. So at the point where he was, for example, in the youth justice system, they might have realize that, hey, this kid has a very high possibility of being convicted, criminally convicted as an adult and not having citizenship will lead him to deportation. We should probably take care of that, right? Um, that would be part of the care. That would be part that of the necessary happen. care, especially knowing that black kids are far more vulnerable in the system and obviously far more incarcerated than anybody else. So the likelihood of him ending up incarcerated as an adult was, um, without being deterministic, like probably 100%, you know? Um, so the, the he's taken into care for his protection, yet the number one protection he needed was the protection of citizenship his aunt attempted to apply on his behalf and they removed him from the form because they said you don't have guardianship so you have no right to apply for him yet at that point they did not apply on his behalf um, and that's uh, th that that one gap that one little gap i mean which is a gigantic mistake would seem to be enough but apparently yeah and he didn't know i mean they had no idea they'd lived in canada all their life as far as they knew they were normal canadians and it's only when abdul's like in prison and then gets the notice or whatever they send you basically mm -hmm. saying that you're under deportation order, um, that he really realized it had any impact. They simply didn't know. One of the one of the things that I find disturbing too is that as you as you read the news items, they're short, they're quick, and one of the things that they say immediately is, "Well, he didn't have, he doesn't have citizenship. He had a residency card. He was arrested and spent time in prison, and now he has to go." Those are the rules, and and they kind of drop it that mm. quick. And, and without opening this up like we're trying to do here, like we're doing here and like you're attempting to do and, and everyone who's involved, there's, there, it's, it's easily racialized, isn't it? Well, I mean, pretty much when you look on, say, Twitter, like um, mostly the people that oppose him staying are just straight up racist. So, yeah. um, you know, like you get comments like one down, deport the rest of you. Uh, I mean, I'm not particularly on Ahmed Hussein's side. I, he hasn't been particularly supportive of the immigration minister. But if you just, like, take a run at his Twitter any day, like, whatever he's posting, he can just be like, oh, you know, here for town hall and blah, blah, blah. And then there'll be, like, memes about ISIS. Like, you know, like, there's just a, a number of really disgusting people in Canada. Um, so a lot of the comments, which Abdul sees, you know, mm -hmm. just like, he's a criminal, get rid of him. Like, you know, and all of this is race-based stuff. So because um, he's Muslim and because he's Somali and he's a black kid, like... You know, so this is not unexpected, but yeah, I mean, you have a large racist contingent that, you know, don't believe in immigration to start with. So mm -hmm. they're certainly very vocal online. Um, people that, you know, bother to read the law in any kind of way understand 
that this particular legal issue. So I was actually um, annoyed too because sometimes the news, so there was a CBC personnel, I won't say his name, but um, retweeted, like, so he tweeted something like, uh, Canadians conflicted. But it wasn't conflict, like, it wasn't conflicting opinions is what he called it. But an opinion is not a wrong fact. So somebody was like, well, he's been in this country 20 years. He could have applied for his own citizenship. He did, obviously didn't want to be Canadian. But as we've laid out, he wasn't able to. He simply could not have applied for his citizenship. So I don't see the reason why the news would retweet that misinformation as a conflicting opinion when it's simply incorrect fact. That's an opinion. And so the news is also in many ways not doing their job. Um, they have been reasonably sympathetic. I think uh, they recognize human rights issues. But at the same time, I think uh, reporters have the duty to clear this kind of stuff up. So a lot of people simply do not understand. Like people don't read, you know what I mean? So they yeah. don't understand that. Yeah, like so things like minors could not apply for their citizenship. People don't know that. So they're like, well, he could have applied. So it's his own fault. And it's like, no, that's the core issue in the case. So you yes. need to, as reporters, uh, you need to be intervening in those facts and getting those facts out there. And that is uh, not often happening. I think also because a lot of this is obviously immigration law, dry immigration law. So it's like, oh, nobody wants to hear like the ins and outs of, you know, what the court challenges are. But this is uh, where this is taking place. So um, you can't stop people from having uninformed and racist opinions. You can stop people from being elevated into like actual news platforms having those opinions. So I wish the reporters would stop treating that as simply a conflicting opinion and recognize it for what it is. Um, the kind of discourse that we certainly don't need to encourage. Um, but yeah, I mean, Abdul reads all of that as well. He sees it all. Um, and his sister. Oh, yeah, they see it all. And they yeah. try to, into, like, Fatuma in particular will go and defend her brother. And I keep saying, you know, like, don't even, like, it's not even factually based. It's just yeah. they see brown skin. That's all they need to see, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, as always, these, like, it doesn't, you don't have to throw a rock very far in Canada to run into these kinds of attitudes. So. Yeah. They And the, and, and, I, and I was, I, I just finished reading an article by uh, Rex Murphy. Mm. In the thing where he called uh, the, dis the discussion of white privilege to be racist, you know? and I and I and I read that, and I sit there on an airplane, sitting on an airplane, and I thought, you know, as a as a uh, uh, entitled white male in this culture, which I am and have been, to re to not recognize what that Im the implications of that are. Is, is is racist and is criminal, well, in mean, my opinion. And that's what this, this the, is an example of where that's happening. The ironic thing is that Rex Murphy would also probably be a free speech and free expression person, but then, oh, you can't talk about white privilege, so then you can't talk about racism, because if you can't name white privilege, you can't name racism. So in other words, free speech for white people and everybody else needs to shut up, which has always been what the free speech movement has been about, right? It's never been about free expression or free speech. It's always been about upholding the citizenship and rights of straight white men, and everybody else can just go away, and you should be grateful to be here. I mean, that's always been the issue. But yeah, I mean, that very starkly makes the point that if we can't talk about white privilege, then we can't name racism, we can't name oppression. So essentially, we're not allowed to talk. That's what that says. And it's and it says it, what's, what's it? It says it couched in terms of freedom and and uh, and liberty and justice and what he was talking about was the equality uh, of uh, you know we're supposed to look at everyone as equal but everyone is not treated equal in this case is one that absolutely well, proves. I mean, Chris Rock said this ages ago about you know when white people complain about not being able to say the n word and as Chris Rock said like hey you can say it and give back all the banks you know what I mean like so you want to I can't call you white but you want to be white right you want to hold you want to hold your white privilege you want to hold your settler home you want to have your bank account you want to have you know your job that you got from you know like Rex Murphy what have you produced that's cutting edge or interesting in years right but like you want to hold that job that you got for being white so you want to hold everything that you have for being white but we can't call you white right i mean chris rock already made this point right like sure give us the banks and you know you can use the n-word and carry, and carry on yeah. like who cares you know um but, but this, this one yeah. this one and that's what i'm saying this this case well, in particular can. and there's other ones right and i mean it's i think that's difficult because i know when i had a conversation with global and then i had to explain it to them mm -hmm. like not because they were being ignorant like no, no. i think it is difficult if you're not familiar with things like the foster care system, the criminal justice system as such. So I did say it was anti-black racism. And then they were like, but this happens to white people too. Like, didn't it happen to Fliss? And it did happen to Fliss Cram. And I was very much involved in that uh, case as well. Um, so Fliss Cram and was a similar situation, came from England. So she's white. She was taken into care. I don't know if you remember this in 2015, um, where she was shackled to her bed. So, so Fliss Cram was a case. Yeah, so she has four children. Um, she deals with a lot of mental illness as well. Mm -hmm. um, she sold drugs she didn't have, imaginary drugs. She said on like Facebook something like, you know, I'm so broke. I, if I sold, if I had drugs, I would sell them or something like that. Yes. And an undercover then messaged her. She didn't have any drugs, but essentially entrapped her. Her lawyer um, was like, oh, she'll get the help she needs for an addiction in prison. So like just basically agreed to federal time when she hadn't actually really done anything. Um, 
And so, of course, that, like Abdul made her eligible for deportation. She was taken into detention in the same way that Abdul was. So you finish your sentence and then you're detained out of that. Uh, she was critically ill. She had a perforated stomach and bowel. Um, she was taken to the hospital and they actually chained her to her bed during that time. And we were protesting that. So it's true. She was white. Um, so... But, but the, the point is, the disproportionate right. numbers. So, you know, you can't say, uh, you know, would this happen to a white kid in care? Yes, it has happened to white children in care as well. But we know that black kids are taken into care mm -hmm. at much higher rates and for much lower thresholds. So, um, you know, like what's called neglectful in black homes, it can be uh, like my sister is a defense lawyer in Winnipeg. So she deals with a lot of indigenous people. And yeah, it's stuff like the parents are having a party downstairs, the kids are upstairs. And the kids are taken into care because you were partying in the house. Well, how many white middle class people have wine with their friends downstairs with the kids upstairs, right? But that would never uh, receive care contact, you know, but because it's an indigenous family. So we know that the standards are much lower. We know that once the kids are in care, they're criminalized in particular ways. So obviously sent into more punitive environments, as we've seen with Abdul, not given culturally competent care. Um, and then, of course... The same problems that exist in the criminal justice system, where in Nova Scotia, 2% of the population is African Nova Scotian, 14% of the adult jail, and 16% of the youth system. And in the youth system, we have restorative justice. So that's a particularly egregious number, because it shows that when we're doing restorative justice, we're leaving out black youth. And that means that we're not seeing black youth as rehabilitatable and savable, right? So right. whereas other kids are seen as, oh, well, they're just a kid, they're going to learn, they made a mistake, black kids are seen as basically career criminals, right? So that's what us being left out of restorative justice shows you. So that number is probably the worst number. Yes. Because even when we have other solutions to incarceration, yeah. and we're supposed to be keeping kids out of jail, we're not keeping black kids out of jail. We're like, those kids can go to jail. And of course, the number one predictor for adult criminality and being in jail is, is being in the youth system, right? So that's why we keep kids out of them, but not black kids because they belong in jail. Right. And that's so. and, that, and that's and that's why the the myth of, of, of what we're doing with our children what and and this is we, we, we they are our children and yet for you know the, for 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 all the all the reasons that you're naming and they're not reasons all the all the horror that you're naming is, is because that is not recognized and acted upon in any real way. And I think the core issue, so we see this, so what I just said about the youth justice system is, and same thing with why we want to remove Abdul from Canada, is black people are never seen as citizens, we're never seen as belonging to Canada, it doesn't matter if we're born here. Mm -hmm. I just read an article, um, it was about that um, white girl in the college, she was poisoning the black girl by like rubbing her tampon on her stuff and like spitting and shoving her toothbrush all kinds of places, mm -hmm. and she was given like accelerated probation, so basically no punishment. And the article said that we all know that laws and citizenship belong to straight white men and everybody else is here contingently. So that's true for, and that's what you see active in this case. So our kids don't need uh, restorative justice because they're born criminals and they belong in jail. We like going to jail, right? Um, we don't need citizenship because we don't really belong in this country anyway. Um, so, I mean, Brendan McGuire, who himself was in foster care and is an MLA, like he was sort of drafted, I guess, by the government to kind of rebut some of the things on Abdul. And he said, well, you know, I didn't want citizenship when I was like 13. Uh, and they came and asked me multiple times. I'm like, well, that's the difference. They came and asked you multiple times. So that's they came back to you and came back to you and came back to you and said, you really need citizenship. No one did that for Abdul. No. Um, because he wasn't seen as belonging in the same way. I mean, that story actually shows you the difference between black kids. Um, because Abdul isn't seen as, oh, well, you need this. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that fundamentally goes to the attitude towards, you know, black skin in Canada, which is you don't belong here. You're not one of us. You're not a real citizen. You're not a real Canadian, you're not an old stock Canadian. You know, all of these old things. Stock, yes. So um, Abdul becomes a victim of that. And particularly around what the policy is, around what the process is, around whether he was able to be seen as a victim, right? So that he's not seen as a child victim. He's seen as a violent young man. And he's seen as basically a violent criminal in waiting at the time when he's still a child, right? Well, they have, I mean, the pictures, you know, the, 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 the pictures of the perp walk, which are what, five years old or something? Yeah, that they keep using. There. Yeah, they keep using on the news. Um, so they won't use footage of him playing with his daughter or him with his family. Hmm. Um, or working at his job. Or working at his job. Um, you know, that because that would present him in a different way. I don't think that's malice. I think that's just, you know, they have the footage, so they just go, oh, we need an image, and they use this image. But isn't, um, isn't it, see, I guess that's the question that, that keeps plaguing me. Isn't it, it you, you, say, you say very kindly, it's not malice, but, but to me, that it's, it's certainly negligence to, to, not, to not take the time and, and understand the implications of showing that picture over and over again and not showing the other pictures. The, the one that's being used as an example now is the gentleman who's under arrest uh, in Toronto, and they keep showing pictures of him on vacation at Niagara Falls. Yeah, well, this is um, the point that uh, was made for me by um, 
Ruba uh, Al-Hassani, who I quoted in an article I wrote when CBC talks about the clothes Abdul wears to court. Yes. Um, and so she makes that point that they haven't shown a mugshot. In fact, the police have said that for some unknown reason they cannot <laughs> get a mugshot. I don't know what that's about. Uh, yeah, so they're showing him on vacation, smiling, and he's an alleged serial killer of at least seven people, but they'll show Abdul in like handcuffs. Yes. And that was something we were very aware of when he got out. Um, like We were like, we need to get pictures of him. That was actually something very early we knew. Um, the people in Toronto were like, uh, we'll bring a barber with us like when we spring him, you know, like when he gets yeah. out because he's going to be in front of the camera. So these are the kind of things you have to think about as black people. So, so, yeah. so the, the question is, 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 is what, can, what can anyone do now? What can we do now, uh, people listening to the podcast? Because this is going to be aired right away. Yeah, so um, there, it's obviously ongoing, like we, the ongoing request to email, call, tweet, Ralph Goodale, the Minister of Public Safety, is ultimately his office that's responsible. If you are emailing, you might as well CC Ahmed Hussein, uh, the Minister of Citizenship, Immigration, Citizenship and Refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, he cannot do anything right now. I suppose he could put pressure on his colleague, Ralph Goodale, but he would be responsible for a compassionate application, which he more or less has seemed to have said publicly that he would do, but the average time for that is two to three years. Right. Um, so that's not really a workable solution. And what about the Minister of Social Services here? Or uh, yes, certainly. Or? Um, so we have called upon them. We had called upon them to intervene and to advocate um, and also for a full review and to um, so to install things like an African Nova Scotian service worker for the mm-hmm. children. Um, uh, I don't know what the exact term for that would be, but somebody responsible for kid, black kids in care. We don't have that. But, um, and that's, and that's, one of those, that's one of those systemic things. Like we, 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 we know, and you've identified it brilliantly, there, there is, there is a, an, an incredible systemic problem mm. in the system in Nova Scotia, in the system federally, it, that's, that's there. And so to address that system, it's going to take, A, for Abdul, it's going to take specific things like these emails. But then there has to be another step in of... of yeah, so I mean, we programs. provincially we wanted a full external inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the options and the best practices from Ontario, for example, include um, keeping tracking race-based data that we don't do. Um, we don't really do any data tracking at all. Um, obviously, culturally competent care. Um, in Ontario, they have a child and youth ombudsman who oversees the system. We don't have that here. We could probably have that. That would be an option as well. And then, of course, yeah, the African Nova Scotia youth ombudsman that ombudsman that would specifically oversee um, black children in care. Those are some of the demands we've made. Um, also that the province intervene and advocate on behalf of Abdul. They have not done that. Um, so nothing. I mean, there really hasn't been... Individually, yes, you know, like, mm-hmm. but no, not on the part of the government. Probably because I feel like they are open to be sued and they're probably not going to do anything because um, the kind of neglect that took place here, I think they are open to particular lawsuits. That may be why they don't want to do anything. Um, also, it's just been a kicking back and forth. So, like, the federal, so Trudeau did acknowledge a province failed Abdul, but then the province hasn't responded to that anyway. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a federal system, so it's safer for Trudeau to say this, but then continue under his federal system. This is something I raised with Ahmed Hussein in the town hall, and he, like, said it's anti black racism. It's like, okay, well, if it's anti black racism, then you have to do something. So you can say that to us, but Ralph Goodale is still proceeding, so how does that work, right? Yeah. So in some cases, there's been words applied, particularly as public pressure has risen, but um, none of that has resulted in anything material. I suppose we'll know on the 21st if they postpone, that would be a big thing if they did that. So you, 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 it's funny when you say, you say demands, and my brain goes, These are, this is just reasonable. This, yeah. is a, this shouldn't be a demand. This should be a, a natural outcome of this situation and the situations like it. Well, like one would assume that when people see an injustice happening that it becomes, and you said at the beginning, you know, it's a very simple case, and it, it is simple. I mean, the rights of a child were denied um, in this kind of enlightenment mythology, if we want to go that, you would think that therefore the system would correct itself. Isn't that mm-hmm. the myth of our, our liberal system, right? Yes. Like this is the myth of the liberal democracy. Sure, we have problems, but like the law identifies and the law is the instrument of good. But um, that is not happening in this case, that people are willing to identify failures. They're willing to identify anti-black racism, even to go that far, but they're not willing to do anything. They still feel that they need to proceed and the fair thing to do is to proceed, but that I've called it the injustice of like paperwork and the, yes. the, the cruelty of, of bureaucracy. I called it that in an article as well, like just sitting in court and listening to arguments. Like, yeah, he's not really being on any, done any permanent harm. I mean, you can go to solitary confinement, but you get out. So, you know, that's not really a harm. If you lose your job, you can get a refugee work permit. I mean, sure, it takes up to six months. I don't know how you're going to feed yourself. Like, you know, I'm not going to pay for your clothes while you do that. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you can do that. And if you lose a job, you're like, hey, you know, you can clean toilets. It's all the same. 
you know, looking for a work permit, that, that might count as work on your parole, or you might get your parole revoked, but then you can get out. You know, so this is kind of the attitude that um, this isn't, these harms aren't occurring. Yeah. Um, of course, none of these are things they'd want inflicted on themselves. No. They would certainly identify them as harms if they were inflicted on themselves, but it's okay for Abdul because he doesn't really matter. Right. And it and it and it the the law you know, see the law is is supposedly made for the people not the people for the law, and yet and yet in this instance as you're saying there, there's a there's a clear racial issue, there's a clear uh, uh, problem of neglect and of and of damage done, and, and as you say, if if you see it and you acknowledge it and then you don't do anything about it what is that? Well, exactly right. So, again, like. So this shows, as you said right at the beginning, the divergence of law and justice, right? That um, we see the law as an instrument of good, but in this case, the law and the process and all these things, the paperwork, you know, all these things are being used as a way to not engage the issue of human rights so that you literally have a process in under the CBSA system mm-hmm. that Abdul's going through where it's not judges that do this. It's not um, like it's literally a system that's kind of outside the system, if you want to say so. Um, ben has talked about this. That, like you would think the Charter of Rights didn't exist reading their submissions. You would think international law didn't exist, and they don't consider that to be relevant. Um, so they literally do not consider like what international so law the, says. So the laws put up a firewall yeah. in that sense against yeah. against uh, the justice in that sense. Yeah. So I mean, I think this is a perfect case to to show. So I mean, obviously, it shows the ne- neglect and fail, particularly our, our lack of care towards youth. But yeah, it also shows that. It also shows that when that failure takes place, there are no mechanisms to correct it. So this sense of, and Harsha Walia said this, that, you know, this sense of just throwing up your hands and just being like, oh, you know, mistakes were made, but like, let's keep going. Keep rather going. than identifying those mistakes were made and we have to address them. And then also, yeah, that even though all these issues of injustice are being raised, uh, there's a kind of full steam ahead attitude. So um, those are all things that should and could be interrupted and should be intervened in in a so-called, you know, just country. Right. But as we've seen with Colton Bushy, Tina Fontaine, I mean, we're seeing this over and over again, Jean Gameshi, whatever it is, um, you know, the, the, this is another representative of the actual failures of these systems. So in Abdul's case, he's been failed by multiple systems, you know, mm-hmm. all of which intersect into anti-blackness. So the foster care system, uh, the youth justice system, the criminal justice system, and the immigration system have all combined on Abdul. And then what we want to do is just get rid of him. So just like get get rid of the problem, send him to Somalia. I mean, border agents can't even go there, but we'll send him there. Right. Right? So so there's a, it's the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination is March 21st. Which is the same day as the hearing. The same so, day as the hearing. So um, this idea of justice is something that... that Justice and the law are butting heads. Yeah, and if we think of why we celebrate or celebrate or recognize uh, the International Day for the Elimination of Racism is, of course, in response to the Sharpeville Massacre mm-hmm. in uh, South Africa, which was about paperwork, you know, that they were forcing black people to have passes, people burned their pass books, and they were shot in the back um, by the apartheid troops, by the South African troops. So um, there's a continuum here with Abdul, right, that yes. around... In this case, there was a government imposing paperwork on people. In Abdul's case, it was the failure to do this paperwork. Um, so the same kind of like bureaucracy and control over black bodies is still active. So Abdul's case is actually very much a culmination of what we're exactly supposed to be recognizing on this day. Because, of course, the apartheid law was all about um, unhousing black people, dislocating black people, um, forcing black people from their homes, and then controlling their movements and criminalizing them. All of things that are currently... I mean, Abdul undergoes now. He has to check in with border services. He has to call like every two hours when he's out, call into his halfway house. So he's under a particular surveillance that is very similar to the way that apartheid-era black bodies mm-hmm. were surveyed and controlled. Um, and, and so it would be a very appropriate case to, for people to recognize on the, this day. And the story goes, the story goes that much of the, uh, of the apartheid structure was designed about what, around what they saw here in Canada. Yeah, they came to visit the reserves uh, in Canada, and that, they, that control of land and movement is goes into the South African apartheid system. So, yeah, Canada's always had a responsibility there. Um, like in the 60s, we were like touring South Africa, you know. Yes. So there's all kinds of relationships uh, between South Africa and Canada that happened in the apartheid era. But, yeah, I think Abdul's case actually very much demonstrates um, how these issues are ongoing. And, and, you know, we think we eliminate them. Oh, we got rid of apartheid. Yay, Nelson Mandela. But mm. um, there's still ongoing apartheid of black bodies in particular ways, not in such explicit ways, but as we see under the law, black bodies are still not equal under the law. This seems pretty explicit here. And this one, I mean, it, 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 you just sit here and look at it and you, and, you know, it, it, you can't, you can't not see it is, is if you look. And, and that's why, you're, as you're saying about the journalists, they've got to, they've got to open it up more and let people see, let, put some light on this. I think too, um, 
like Abdul is a human being. Um, I know him, you know, he's a, a person. And so it's also difficult because, you know, we've talked a lot about the law and cases mm-hmm. and all this. Abdul is a human. Um, his life matters. When we say black lives matter, we mean Abdul's life matters. Um, you know, he, ha- he reads this stuff online. Yes. He has to now live his life out in public in particular ways. Um, the fact that people know all his personal business about being abused, about mm-hmm. what happened to him. He has no privacy. No. Um, and he has to sort of sacrifice that in this attempt to receive advocacy. Um, and then if that advocacy is unsuccessful, um, he is not only not in Canada, but is essentially on the way out being stripped of even like the ability to, to hold his, his life personal to him, mm-hmm. to have his abuse not broadcast everywhere. And of course, he has to broadcast those things in order to appear human and vulnerable to people. Um, so, yeah, there's a particular humanity that Abdul is being repeatedly denied, a particular humiliation um, that him and his sister have to undergo every time. So his sister goes to speak to the media for two months. She has to talk about being abused. Um, and have you know like that story is out there about her being you know in this home and removed from the home and we all know about that that's not something that uh, most people would want the whole of the country to not only know but then be able to arbitrate on and dismiss or make fun of or you know say it doesn't matter Um, so it's it's very very dehumanizing and the idea that for the rest of his life Abdul's name will be associated with this um, Mm -hmm. even and we I believe he will stay in Canada I believe he won't be deported Um, but you know you know, that's, that never goes away. I mean, he's, everybody has, you know, speak what crime he did. Like, mm-hmm. is he a monster? Is he a criminal? Is he these things? Um, so I think that we need to always remember that Abdul is a person. Um, he's a kind person. He's, he's a person that is very concerned for your welfare. Um, when you call him up, if you, you know, he'll hear something in your voice and be like, oh, you sound sad. Like, is something going on? Um, he says stickers he over Facebook. Yeah, he has a, he has a daughter who um, he can't live with right now because yeah. he's in Toronto, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, he's not a piece of paperwork. He's not a case. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's not even an object, even though he is in many ways an object lesson, you know, and, and in many ways we say, well, this case represents anti-blackness in Canada and this case represents the failure mm-hmm. of this. But he's a person. He's not a case. Um and he's a person that, yeah, as I, like his life matters. Abdul has value. Um, Abdul has never received a chance, and he's deserving of that chance. He's deserving of humanity, and he's deserving of dignity like anybody else. Mm-hmm. And sadly, even when I have to sit here and talk about it, that strips Abdul of his dignity and his humanity in particular ways that we have to go through in order to get him the help we need. But it's also very sad on Abdul's part um, that he, he, he is none of us will ever sit there and have like the public debate our most personal and private moments mm-hmm. and Abdul has to have that so um, this whole process is completely dehumanizing um, and really unnecessary for yes. um, you know because it could be halted at any time and we have to and we have to do what we can at this point to not only to remedy this situation but, but other to kids start yeah. to so prevent it for other kids ongoing. and other people so um, so there are other cases yeah. so that's very important to address and also of course we can close this gap and there'll be other gaps. So, I mean, this case has, a, I guess, a partic- because of the particular issue around the citizenship not being got from by the state. Yes. But, of course, this happens to kids who come here at six months and their parents don't get them citizenship and they've all been deported. I mean, there's just no... We deport all kinds of people. And we deport people who've been here since age two. We deport people who've been here, like, two days. <laughs> like, um, that system has always existed so... In one of the sort of dangers, I suppose, of making particularly unique arguments is then we sort of say in this case, but not the others. But of course, I don't believe that it, you know anybody should really be deported. Um, certainly not for six months, which is one that you get right now. If you serve six months non-concurrently in prison, you're eligible for deportation. It shouldn't have happened to Fliss. It shouldn't have happened to Deborah Spencer. Um, it shouldn't be happening to all kinds of people. And unfortunately, many people do just get deported in the same situation yes. with no language. Um, and that is also a violation, even though it wasn't a case of them being in care. Well, it, it, the Article 15 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, everyone has a right to a nationality. No one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his nationality or denied the right to change his nationality. Yeah. I mean, that's that's as clear as it is. Thank you for this. Um, is there anything that, that you want to add to our discussion at this point? I'll say um, one of the stories Abdul told very early when he got out is he talked about uh, being in immigrate like so in Lindsay which is where they eventually all the detainees end up this is a jail in Toronto Mm -hmm. and um well outside of Toronto and he's sitting in a cell and he says the names are carved into the wall all around he sees names and dates and he realizes of course it's the names and dates of the dates that people got deported and he like reels off a bunch of these names so it would be you know like you know, Ahmed so-and-so, like, November 1st, 2006, or whatever, right? Um, and so he's just 
experiences this as their death dates and he feels himself as sitting within his own tomb basically surrounded by these names and dates and then he of course realizes that his name is going to be the next on this wall that he's going to write you know abdul abdi january 6th 2018 and walk out and essentially walk out into what he sees as, as a state beyond death mm-hmm. um he sees his deportation as really an abyss um he asked me once would i remember him when he's deported um, and he didn't mean like, will you check for me? Will you call me? He literally meant, will you remember me? Um, he sees it as a state beyond death of what he's experiencing. And he lives with that every day, um, not knowing when this is going to happen, you know, waiting on these court cases that are being postponed or this and that's happening. You know, then he will wait in limbo for two to three years. You know, they have to get papers, there'll be appeals. And that's for him a death sentence mm-hmm. that is, is hanging over his head that he's living with. Um, so that's a story he told me that also indicates the extent of which this happens, you know, like that there is cells filled with these people's names, you know, mm-hmm. that we're deporting. Um, and that it is like a death sentence. That's how it's experienced. And we don't have the death penalty in Canada, but we feel quite free to inflict it, you know, as long as it takes place in Somalia. Mm-hmm. So so that epitaph must not go on that wall. No. Um, so we, like. we can, I believe we will win this. We will fight for Abdul. Um we just don't want to wait three years for his rights to finally be installed, which is why it's still important and very important to place pressure now. No. So to continue to write, tweet, call, write letters, uh, Ralph Goodale, your local MLA, I mean, sorry, your local MP, um, like Justin Trudeau, whoever you want to, you know, tweet storm it. Abdul was trending in Toronto for a period uh, around the 7th. We can get him trending here as well. Okay. So um, just to keep it in the public consciousness. Um, and, and, also, and, our, and our own problem, provincially. Yeah, um, of course, provincially. So you can write the Minister of Community Services. Uh, you can write your own MLAs and demand they intervene. And exactly demand that, you know, we do not stand silent in the face of injustice. Injustice is actually not complex. People always act to you like, oh, it's so complex. It's not complex. It's right and it's wrong. And when you see a wrong occurring, you have a duty to stand up against it. And it's as simple as that. So we can do that and let's continue to do it. It's a simple matter of justice. It is simple. Thank you so much. Very Thank much. You. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Shift for Brains. If you wish to comment, or you want to join in the discussion, or you want to give us some ideas for future podcasts, you can contact us on Twitter at Shift Brains Pod, on Facebook at Shift for Brains Pod, or on our website, shiftforbrains.ca. This is a creative endeavor brought to you from ARC, whose mandate is to create space for authentic human exchange. If you want to know more about ARC, we're on Twitter at Arcworks CA, Facebook backslash Arcworks CA, or at our website, arcworks.ca.